Is That a Convenient Time, the podcast recorded next to the Supreme Court of South Australia. Dear listeners, welcome back to episode three. We've got an hopefully exciting episode uh, with me as usual. Two men who have never met an adjournment they didn't like, top barristers, Darren Blight Casey and William Mellor. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Scott. Pleasure to be invited back uh, for episode three in your delightful chambers. It's an episode by episode proposition <laughs> at this point, Darren. <laughs> have you ever noticed that when uh, someone like Sean Fuster or the advertiser write about a barrister in a case, it's always top barrister or leading barrister. I'd, I mean, I'd like at one point just to be a bit honest, you know, me- mediocre silk, Darren Blight case. They, o- they often uh, use, yeah, high profile, uh, leading you know, or high profile. What about, yeah, as you say, average? Silk. What about embattled? <laughs> embattled. Oh, that's always a good, that's always a good indication. <laughs> yeah. Barely not sobbing barrister, <laughs> William Mellor. <laughs> Super magnificent barrister, Scott Evans. (laughs) Now, by way of introduction, we should, of course, extend our sincere thanks to President Mark Liversey for coming on last episode, episode two. Insightful and interesting and told us some interesting facts about uh, your young days as a solicitor, Darren. So, Yes, no, we do sincerely thank his honour coming on and giving up his time. He has a... Obviously, a, a busy time as the president. Now, we should say on on the topic of interviews, uh, Will, you and I had a uh, very interesting and uh, insightful interview pre-recorded with Rebecca Ross, CEO mm. of JusticeNet. So that's coming up after the break. So something to look forward to there. We mentioned in the interview the upcoming event for JusticeNet, which is Art for Justice. It's on the 22nd of September, 5pm to the very sensible end time of 7.30pm at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And I think we, during the interview, we, we went looking for a website, couldn't find it. It's um, A4J, that's the numeral for, dot justicenet.org.au. So we'll pop that up. As I say, that's going to be an excellent night in which a um, live art is done of a chosen case. So turning cases into art. Uh, how would you do that for, say, Donahue and Stevenson, the snail in the bottle? That could be an interesting live art session. I'd look forward to that. Could be. Most of mm. yours, uh, which are, of course, losses, are probably just a black black wall. <laughs> That's right. Just screaming <laughs> in an inferno of hell. <laughs> Stayed with your tears. Um, the other thing to look forward to um, by way of announcement of events coming up is, of course, the Ice Factor Spectacular for November 2023 hosted by Jane Doyle, OAM, and I was taken by the the name of this, which I must say reminds me of your advocacy, Darren, Unmasking Miracles. Mm, I do that regularly. That's what you promised to clients, uh, isn't it's it? It's in my written retainer letter. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that will be at the Hilton Adelaide. Tickets can be uh, purchased through the Eventbrite if you just search uh, Ice Factor Spectacular. Of course, that goes to a very, um, all proceeds go to a very worthy uh, cause, the Ice Factor Foundation, helping um, young adults and teenagers at risk and or, and or who are struggling. And that, of course, Murray Shaw puts that on or organises that. Where's it been held? That's at the Hilton Adelaide. Oh, not at the Ice Arena. Not at the, not at the Ice oh. Arena this time. Oh, uh, I was just assuming. Lucky, lucky you checked, Darren. <laughs> yeah, lucky I checked. Yeah. With that. With those uh, announcements mentioned, throw it over to you, Darren. Um, what Before we get on well, to the interview and some cases which are coming up. Those who are regular listeners of the podcast would know that from time to time I've 
refer to the Adelaide Advertiser for uh, current uh, headlines. And um, and indeed your legal research. Correct. Uh, but I don't need the Advertiser. I mean, we know that the Matildas made the semifinals of the World Cup. Unfortunately, they lost 3-1 against England. Heartbreaking. Uh, Robbed. Oh, Rob, you Rob. think robbed? I'm a, I'm a close follower of the game of football, mm. as we know. And in noodling. All its forms, and noodling. Um, mm. When I'm not noodling, I'm, I'm footballing. Um, so Matildas uh, get to play off, though, don't they, for third uh, or fourth yeah, position? Third. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be no energy in that. I, I mean, I I'm not going to watch it. They, oh. <laughs> they do that in World Cups, in, for the Rugby World Cup as well. And I think it must be a really hard game to turn mm. around It must for. be a hard game. I think that's a particularly harsh attitude, though. Darren, I think oh, I'll be watching I think most sure. of Australia yeah. will still be watching. I mean, the Sam Kerr goal in the semi-final was extraordinary. It was, it was how many defenders was she taking on single-handedly? Four, three, three or four, five. Not the goalie. Let's yeah. just say ten. Yeah. Um, and um, seventeen. Thirty meters out, drilled it straight through into the goal. But we've I mean, also not spoken about the penalty shootout against France. I mean, that was high drama. High drama. Yes, following 120 minutes of kind of. Low drama. Well, <laughs> tense low drama. So, you know, it, it, on one view, it was quite a kind of a not exciting game uh, and then a very, very mm-hmm. exciting game for those who don't follow soccer. I think is- there's an argument to change the rules and move away from the penalty shootout. So you, par- you play 90 minutes plus plus into extra time and then you go into a penalty shootout. I mean, let's throw some ideas out there. Instead of having one person against the goalkeeper, you have three and three balls. Maybe so, so make uh, the, just unpack that for a moment. So, what three balls three, and, and three strikers? Oh, I see. Yeah, um, only or only, yeah, and, and, and narrow down the goals. <laughs> Have dive bombing seagulls that come in, <laughs> well, <laughs> like you do at the MCG when you're playing footy. <clears throat> I, I think they should mix it up. That's a quite a complicated recipe. Then, well, I'm sick and tired of people talking about how exciting that penalty shootout was. I mean, I Is think that it could have. Didn't see it. So, <laughs> do you have FOMO? My name's well, but I'm not Barnaby Joyce. <laughs> oh, which which is the most magnificent story yeah, of the yeah, cold competition. I just so, remembered that yeah, story. Yeah. So Barnaby was sitting there on the edge of his seat watching the game, mm. but it was in fact the wrong game. It was a replay of an earlier game, and he thought that the Matildas coasted home. But so just so funny, I mean, so funny. Typical, but that's pure. 100% Barnaby right there. <laughs> Courts, though, um, let's get off soccer for a minute. We had some uh, dramas recently. The district court building uh, had a blackout, uh, power outage, uh, I think it was Monday or Tuesday of it this did. week. It did. Uh, it caused jury, chaos. Jury trials suspended, lawyers uh, on the street. Am I putting that too highly, gentlemen, uh, chaos? No. I think that's very, very reserved, really. I mean, you have a five-minute directions hearing that needs to be rescheduled to 2024, the way the court lists are at the moment. It is chaos. Well, chaos, but also I think um, some happy faces from people who would otherwise be working, but certainly the lawyers who possibly were coming up against a very hard case and all of a sudden saved by the electricity conduit. Well, the first thing that came into my head was it's a heist, um, like in uh, Die Hard 2 where they cut the power and they got into the uh, treasury building from the demolition site, the construction site next door, I thought, hang on a minute. So Nak- Nakatomi Towers type of- No, uh, no, the second one oh, in New York one. City. Ah. And I thought, oh, my God, what's going to happen here? I think there's um, going to be a heist of draft judgments <laughs> <laughs> or similar. But I think the afternoon off for the judges is a good thing. If there's any outstanding uh, judgments, you could 
know, write your judgments using, or stay in the building and write judgments using the torch on your iPhone. <laughs> Go back to candlelight. Yeah, perhaps. But I've, I've got a bone to pick about this with the Courts Administration Authority. Surely you prepare for these events. Now, Will, I look at you and I see a man of action, a man who prepares scouts. Um, As do I. And Scott, very much so. Um, you should plan for these events. You should avoid this type of chaos by doing one thing, one thing only. And it's, I Go think on. it's obvious, Go on. particularly from my practical country upbringing, that is a diesel backup generator. Mm-hmm. Why on earth does the court not have a backup generator? Hospitals have one. Exactly. And they're doing surgeries. We're dispensing justice. Well, you say that, but I think my wife who works in the hospitals, there was a power blackout recently and the diesel generator failed to start because someone had forgot to fill up the diesel. And so in a hospital, (laughs) they were actually nearly- You had one job. (laughs) Can you imagine how much trouble that man would have been in? Just, uh, I've forgotten to buy the diesel again. That reminds me of something I heard on the- I think it was the radio quite recently that there was a, a um, electric vehicle charging station out somewhere in the country and it runs off a diesel generator. That probably is a convenient time to uh, have a look at some cases before we have a break and pass over to our Rebecca Ross interview. I've got a, I've got one and passing reference to another, but Will, you've got one involving audiovisual. The use of audiovisual in the giving of evidence in, in court. So this is a decision from the New South Wales Supreme Court. Uh, it's called Lawrence and Aram Besich. We'll put the citation up. But it's a quite a nice pithy discussion on, on the factors to be considered in determining whether or not to permit evidence by AVL. Um, this is an application f- brought by the plaintiff to lead evidence of a witness who was located in Bangladesh. Application was resisted by the defendant on three bases. Firstly, it was very important evidence, especially as to the credibility of that witness. There was no indication of the procedures that were in place to, to facilitate the giving of the witness and on the balance of things, getting this person to fly to Australia overbore any inconvenience um, suffered by them. And the, the court ultimately uh, rejected those submissions and acknowledged that it was very important evidence and that generally assessing credibility is preferable in person to AVL, but that it can be done via AVL and that the facilities that were in place were adequate given that it was quite a discreet point and that this particular witness had appeared on Bangladeshi TV shows, uh, sorry, talk shows on Bangladeshi TV, so mm. yeah, had good technology in place. What are we talking? Who wants to be a millionaire? I, I haven't. My research hasn't gone that far. C- but cricket commentating, no, yeah. no doubt. And the other factor was that it would take him seven days to for a return journey to give two hours of evidence. In light of all those things, they seven days, seven days. Don't they have a direct flight to Bangladesh anymore? I'm I'm not sure. It reminds um, me of the old days um, when we uh, used to appeal to the Privy Council with. So Garfield Bowie on a boat to England, take a, a month or two to get there and a month or two back. So it'd be quite a quite a journey. I think we've lost something in the law. So and, oh the real Sir Garfield Bowie. Not the AI version. Justice Piddington was famously appointed to the High Court as he was setting out for one of those voyages. And by the time he'd come back, he, for other reasons, resigned his commission. So he's a justice of the High Court who never presided. 
over a case. And spent his entire um, career as a judge on a boat. Yeah, fairly well. That reminds me, Darren, have you received the call yet about the High Court? Sitting, waiting patiently, <laughs> uh, ready to go. I've been reading the Commonwealth um, Constitution. <laughs> For the first time? Yes. yes. <laughs> Since law school. What does Section 92 say? Uh, it says there will be. Thou shalt not kill. <laughs> something about trade or commerce. <laughs> All right, next uh, case. Yeah, next case. So, so the next case, um, with thanks to Chris Beams at JWS, who brought my attention to this case, it's Ezekiel Hart and the and the Council of the Law Society of the ACT decision of eight August from the Australian Capital Territory, and the order starts off as follows. The parties are no longer to correspond with my chambers until judgment is delivered on the applications before me. So this was a judgment forbidding the parties to correspond and email the court because of some impertinent and inappropriate emailing that had gone on. And I thought that was of general interest because you do see that a bit nowadays, lots of emails to judges, especially especially with self-represented litigants, but but also with lawyers and represented parties. The first thing is on said was referring to an email sent for court to start at a certain time so the council could appear, putting aside the impertinence of the request, that is that this court should organise its business to suit the availability of council. The email was not appropriate to be sent. And court then went through in quite some detail and identified the, the types of circumstances where it is appropriate to email the court. And there's some specific rules in that jurisdiction, indeed our jurisdiction, I'll come to in a moment, identifying four circumstances where it is appropriate. The first was trivial matters of practice and procedure, i.e. the start or start time or the location of a matter or whether the judge is robing. Number two, ex parte matters, where of course there's, there's no opponent. Third, where the communication responds to a judge's question by email. And four, exceptional circumstances. So they're the only four exceptions. I mean, there is a there's the overarching exception where there's consent by the other parties, but it's a very limited, uh, very limited exceptions to to the consent position. So worthwhile to read and to to think before you email a, a judge or a judge's chambers, lest an impartiality of the judge is carelessly compromised, as His Honour set out. Can I just make two quick observations about that in the South Australian Conduct Rule? I think it's Rule 19 for memory that deals with communications, but in a more practical sense, this is something that you do see occur quite regularly with self-represented litigants. So that's in a category of its own. And I think one of the decisions that's referred to in the case you've just mentioned, the New South Wales decision, I think it might be Justice Slattery, the New South Wales Supreme Court. It's quite a helpful judgment there as well. And in that case, if I recall, one of the parties got in trouble because they used an email from the judge's associate making an inquiry about moving the hearing time and date as an opportunity to put submissions with respect to the application, which seems from a common sense point of view to be inappropriate, but from time to time, uh, these things happen. Mm. So that rule, um, shooting from the hip as usual, Darren, it's actually rule 22.5 of the solicitor's conduct. That's what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, so rule 19 under the former rules. Ah, I see. We'll check that in due course. So uh, a legal practitioner must not outside an ex parte application or a hearing of which an opponent has had proper notice communicate with the court unless the court has first communicated with the practitioner or the opponent has consented beforehand. So that's 
actually very confined and limited, and the same applies to the barrister's rules, which are now part B of the conduct rules in Rule 54. So I think the probably the overarching takeaway point is before you email the court, think twice, always seek the opponent's consent. And if you don't have the consent, think about the time-honoured approach of actually calling the matter back on to address the judge in court in a formal way. Well, it's like a lot of um, good practice and advocacy, isn't it? I mean, don't you just pick up the phone or email your opponent and say, we consider it appropriate to email the court with respect to this issue? Can we please have your consent, perhaps draft the communication for their consent? There's uh, one more case, which I'm not going to go through in detail and don't read for any presidential value, but I thought it was a, a delightful turn of phrase from our Justice Bampton, who seems to me is picking up the role of the now retired Master Sanderson. So it's Lawrence and the Police, 2023, our Supreme Court case 115. It concerned an appeal against a conviction for assault. Ultimately, the appeal was allowed and the conviction was overturned, but it had some very interesting facts which led their honour to uh, frame a heading of part of her reasons. So page seven under above paragraph 32. I'll just read it out verbatim. Uh, No teeth, no sex. Weed for nothing and chicks for free. And Her Honor has um, footnoted that with apologies to dire straits. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's quite a, a quite a turn of phrase. Well, um, great song. Very, very good song, uh, Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. And, of course, um, if memory serves, uh, Sting sings on Money for Nothing. He's got the high bit at the start, the high bit at the end. And if memory serves as well, I think Sting may have co-wrote the song with Mark Knopfler but I could be wrong on that, but he certainly sings on it. I had no idea Sting was that high voice at the yep. start. I don't know what either of you are talking about. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> how, how, old, how old are you? I'm I mean, 21. <laughs> you don't know money for nothing for Dire Straits? No. That's a fact, great album, by the way. Okay, well, and I think uh, on that note, we'll, we'll, we'll pause here and uh, interplay that song. <laughs> So, Will, you mean to tell me you've never heard that song? I've heard the MTV intro song. So you've been, so you've been watching MTV and you've heard the... I, I don't watch MTV I habitually, but I've seen MTV and I've seen that I want my MTV. Right, but you're unfamiliar with Money for Nothing by Dice Yeah, yeah. There you go. It was very, very popular because the album itself, Brothers in Arms, was a hugely successful album for Dire Straits and the video, music video itself, was hugely popular too because it had like cartoon graphics of almost like a video game style video and was very popular. It had other great hits on it like Brothers in Arms. Great song, Brothers in Arms. Um, I think my favourite album is the um, is Dire Straits by Dire Straits. I think that's the 1978 release um, which had Six Blade Knife. Is that um, Sultans of Swing? Oh yeah. Twisting by the Pool? We may have Twisting by the Pool on it, but it's got Six Blade Knife, it's got Down by the Waterline. But, Will, this is all going over your head. 
Yes. Uh, I've just checked Money for Nothing was released in the year I was born, so that's probably got something to and do with it. And what year was that, Will? <laughs> 1985. <laughs> <laughs> you had a, that was a, a trick question. I was 21 for a long, very, very long time. <laughs> Extensive knowledge of law, um, a, a, a deep knowledge of French wine, but uh, Dire Straits a closed book. It's all about priorities. <laughs> time for a Dire Straits night here at Chambers, Darren. I, I think so, and maybe a trivia night. Uh, with those cases done, uh, why don't we now have a break? We'll come back with our recorded interview with Rebecca Ross and um, we'll see Darren in his delightful tones uh, at the end. If you like this podcast or even if you don't, please consider making a donation to JusticeNet or become a friend for as little as $10 a month. All contributions are tax deductible. Head over to justicenet.org.au and look for the donate button. They're doing extremely important work and even a modest contribution will help. That's justicenet.org.au. Welcome back. Joining us today is a very special guest, Rebecca Ross, CEO of JusticeNet. Hey, Will. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Uh, great to have you on. Big supporters of JusticeNet here on the podcast. Great. Thank you. No, we're thrilled for your support, so thanks for that. So, Rebecca, you've been CEO of JusticeNet since, I think, September uh, 2021. Yeah, that's right. So, Coming up to two years. And you're um, you're a lawyer by, by trade. Yeah, yep. I've been all sorts of different things, but always sort of stayed in the access to justice realm. So yep. I started practicing. Um, I've done some time in courts administration, um, some time in legal tech, but have been practicing that whole time. And not always in Australia. You've you've been around the place. I have, yeah. I've spent some time overseas, interstate. Um, and in fact, coming back to Adelaide was a big part of sort of joining the Justice Net team. I've been a big fan of their work for a long time and I started as a volunteer there many years ago. And so it's sort of nice to do the loop and be able to come back home. And, and so was that at the Valencia University or is yeah. the Universidad de Valencia? Yeah, Universidad de Valencia. Mm. Yeah, oh, yeah. but yes. <laughs> I didn't throw enough syllables in there, Will. Yeah. <laughs> soft C. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes, I spent some time there. I spent some time um, in Prague doing some sort of human rights sort of focused uh, work and then came back. I did a bit of time working in Sydney, came back and then did a long stint in the NT and Came back. Adelaide is my yo-yo town. <laughs> yeah, right. So. I, I actually saw that and um, I noticed you were captain of the Port Darwin Football Club Women's Premier Reserve Team. Yes, yeah, so you have done very well with the things you've dug out. <laughs> also known as the Wolfies. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing what Google turns up with. The Wolfies. Yeah. Um, so the Wolfies. Can the Wolfies, yeah. yeah right. Port so, Darwin. So you'd be going mad at the moment for the uh, World, World Cup. Yeah, it is pretty exciting. I don't think we ever got crowds that were close to this <laughs> during uh, during my football career, but no, it is, it's amazing to see. It's yeah. really exciting stuff. We're, we were just talking before we started recording about the the viewership of of the World Cup. It's mm. just amazing, isn't it? I think you said yeah. double the, the yeah. AFL grand final numbers. Yeah, it's- absolutely. And it's just such an incredible sort of watching people appreciate women's sport and also watching the sort of the atmosphere of women's sport, such a sort of warm and sort of it was a lovely – I went to the, the game against um, the France game earlier this week and it was just incredible. So yeah. it is really nice to see it getting its moment and actually sort of having people come down and, and see face-to-face sport and leaving with a, with a smile on their face. It's really nice. And by the time this – episode goes to air, we'll probably know the result of um, France and Australia mm. on Saturday, oh. but that's going to be a big, big one. I, I Won't think. it? Yeah. I actually was ordering a coffee this morning and the local barista is uh, French and we had this sort of tense moment of going, oh, good week for you. He was like, yes, we'll see who is happy next week. <laughs> yes. like, see you next Ooh. week. Yeah. How do you think it's going to go? 
Oh, I don't think you can composite anyway, except for go the Matildas. Can you? Yeah, well, like, yes. we do have the history on our side. So what one nil on mid uh, a month ago? So mm. um, yeah, no, pretty exciting stuff. Mm. Yeah, look, I I think it's it, it is just so exciting for women's sport, but for sport in general, it's um yeah, it's great. And it was just phenomenal. Like we had great seats on Thursday, and just the amount of people who are commenting around, you just can't help themselves going, God, they're really good. Like, <laughs> yeah, great. the best in the world. That's yeah. <laughs> I actually that is I did the. In French TV, put an ad on yeah, Orange Mobile. Orange Mobile, mm. where they um, mm. they took a, an excellent play in women's soccer football, mm. and then digitally with AI turned them into men they to the did. video. Mm. And then they yeah. played the men, the fake men, one first, and mm-hmm. everyone's thinking, "Wow, isn't that great?" And yeah. then they said, "Actually, this is really the women." I know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think the the really clever sort of linguistic point of that with the adding of the e with the like you know blah and then changing mm. it was mm. just like, ugh. Clever, yeah. very clever. Yeah. Yes. I have had some um, male friends who have watched that going, oh, I could pick it straight away that that was women. It's like you could not. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was, I was fooled. I, I yeah. did. Mm-hmm. Um, so your your time overseas, part of that was spent, I think, doing a Churchill Fellowship. Yeah. So that was recently sort of in the last sort of Christmas break. Yeah. I went overseas doing a Churchill Fellowship on access to justice and particularly looking at sort of three main prongs towards how to better deliver access to justice in isolated communities or communities experiencing disadvantage. So having spent a lot of time in the NT and working particularly in First Nations communities, I was really interested in sort of how do we get the court outside the four walls to actually extend to communities And it's that sort of justice concept of moderately sort of colonial arrogance in regards to, well, if you want people to abide by laws, can they also challenge them? Yeah. And when you're doing circuit courts and things where really in terms of resources, you can only go out there once a month or once every two months. And as an advocate, when I was appearing in those courts, I had lots of things to say about Mm. how absurd that was. And then, of course, I went into courts administration and it was part of my responsibility to actually arrange them and, you know, manage the budget for them and just went, oh, my gosh. It's really hard. Really Mm. complex. Hugely Mm. complex. When did, I mean, you see often now the federal court taking hearings in in country. Is that a recent phenomenon or has it been going on for I mean, the idea of the court going outside of the courtroom goes back a very long time. And I think what is is more common is the cost to doing it. And that's more recent in regards to, well, do we really, should we be doing this? And when I first sort of decided to do a Churchill Fellowship, I had come off the back of some study in the US, sort of particularly looking around the criminalisation of poverty. And this idea sort of came up of going, could we, and imagine this, put yourself in the mind of 2019, <laughs> could we consider using technology instead? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down. Yeah. Slow down, Rebecca. Yeah, it was pretty crazy back then. People thought I was a little yeah. cuckoo. And then, of course, 2020 happened and we had Mm. to do it overnight. And being involved in courts administration at that time was a whirlwind. Mm. I don't think that court officers get enough credit for just how difficult that time was for them. Mm. Like it was overnight you're trying to figure out how to use WebEx and how to use these different programs. Well, there's probably two things there. It's it's the lack of facilities and tech but also the mindset. I mean, they just wouldn't have had a mindset of administering justice over a video. Yeah. I think there was also a lot of things. I mean, after that time, I did some time in legal tech and we had some really interesting research around a lot of the resistance coming from the profession, not from the actual client. And a lot of that came down to things like practitioners feeling that they couldn't be as compelling over the screen. And there's some interesting sort of baseline 
questions in that research as to, well, just how compelling do you think you are? <laughs> really? <laughs> a question for you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, things like I, I can't pick up the, the nuances of a witness if I'm not in person. Mm-hmm. Well, that does have a sort of research assumption that you pick up everything when yeah. you're in the room. On that topic, there was a, I can't remember which judge it was, but he wrote in a judgment that with the video witnesses and evidence, your face is actually right there, mm-hmm. right in front of you. you yeah. It's like you're sitting a metre away from the witness, whereas in a courtroom it, you can be 10, 15 metres away yeah. and not pick up on the little things. So it's, there's actually some benefits there. Mm. Yeah, the micro expressions and things like that, for sure. It's a really interesting area because, of course, the flip side to that is are you delivering justice in a meaningful way? And so a lot of my research overseas was sort of going to places where it was solely virtual, going to places where it wasn't virtual, and I think uh, the overarching sort of aspect of it was a lot more dire than I think it was. Um, I was expecting which was that these sort of questions are what are at the baseline of people's belief in the rule of law. Like do they truly feel heard and understood by the process that they're experiencing? It's not just a question of whether or not we're giving a good service. It's a question of whether or not they believe it. Well, and that's the other thing. So the benefit of a trial is not, of course, just to get the result. It's to it's the process that people have got to feel that they've, as you say, been seen and heard and, mm. and had justice. and Had their day in court. Had their so. day in mm. court, whereas mm. I wonder whether that's diminished. I mean, I suppose it would be to a, to a degree if it's just on, mm. the, on the video. Well, and it's funny because one of the things that a lot of that, those interviews sort of turned up for me was the idea of the day in court, in inverted commas. It, was, it wasn't necessarily that people wanted to go to a courthouse. They mm. just wanted mm. to be heard by a lawyer. And so there were some incredible programs that I was able to visit with in India, for example, where they had these hyperlocal solutions of having paralegals who were from the village in the village sort of doing that work. And every second week they would have a lawyer come out and sort of make some phone calls and do some mediations. And they felt sufficiently heard because that was actually a far more empowering process for them than being dragged down to Delhi, being sort of sat in front of a busy court. And so the day in court, I think, is another premise that we kind of assume where people just want a lawyer to hear them. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's right. The administration of justice, it's its not just a court. In fact, it's, it's mm. hardly ever a court. Are you seeing um, technology improve access to justice here in Australia? Or yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people that would probably be far more qualified to speak on that. But I think yeah. from my perspective of what I've seen in my career to date, what it has um, enabled us to do is get broader reach yeah. in terms of places that just would be off limits before, but I think it's also expanded our minds a little bit more past the idea of, well, we can't do a phone call. Well, actually now a phone call seems fine if we're willing to do a video. So I think what it's done is just sort of broadened our minds towards what that could look like. And I mean, there's a lot of conversations at the moment around AI Mm. um, and that sort of space. And I think an important thing to hold in our minds whilst we discuss technology and law, and I say this to a lot of students that come and volunteer with us, the idea of you know, this is the new form of communication. It is the new tool. It's as if a hundred years ago, a lawyer wouldn't say, well, I don't really use pens. Sorry. <laughs> it's like, well, no, technology is the tool now. So we have to learn how to mm. use it and be ahead of it and see our role in regards to sort of more, how can we assist in the development and the regulation, but also really bearing in mind that we as a profession have huge numbers of people that we are not serving. And if technology can help us reach them, that's something that we should be able to embrace cautiously. Yeah. yeah. And it's got, it's got to be cautious, doesn't it? Because yeah. um, some older people may not yeah. be able to embrace it. Some people just might not have computers. Yeah. Be- There's an amazing um, a project that's been done in California in regards to a self-help centre where they have something like 50 computers and they thought that what they would be doing is mainly assisting people who are sort of lower socioeconomic by having the self-help centre. You can sort of work your own way through it. What they've actually found is the majority of people using it are middle income. They're often have tertiary degrees 
they don't really want to pay for a lawyer because they might just have something quick that they need to do. And so what they've found is that their embracing of technology has not broadened who would access the court. It's meant that the court time is used on those people who can't use technology, mm. which um, I think is an important reminder for us that digital exclusion is not necessarily a reason to not use technology. It's a reason to use technology so that those people are out of the court. Mm, yeah. So looking at, looking at Justice Net, the sort of programs that, that are run, what's, what's an overview of, of, yeah, of Justice, Justice Net? Net's? Yeah, sure. So Justice Net is... Uh, in the legal sort of terminology, the South Australian Public Interest Legal Clearinghouse, we're the sort of state uh, representation on the Pilch Network nationally. But really what that means in reality is that we are a not-for-profit legal service providing access justice for people who can't either pay for a lawyer or access any funded assistance, either through legal aid or a community legal centre. And we then address that need by working on the scale of the pro bono work in the private profession. So that either is it through our main clearinghouse, which is obviously what Justice Net was set up to do 15 years ago now, and that is sort of taking in those cases, looking at sort of the need, the merit, the means, and going, is this a valid use of pro bono work? Or, which actually happens in about 55% of cases, there's a funded service available for you. Let us help you interact with them. So let's redirect you. And then making sure that those people who are eligible are then getting assistance from the profession and we sort of upskill. And there's obviously a lot of benefits to doing pro bono work, not just the public benefit, but also the personal benefit because it feels great, but also the professional in the sense that it is actually, you know, they're great for your career. A lot of those cases, they're really interesting matters. And the importance of going through a clearinghouse is, of course, that there are some hardcore economics behind it, which is that if you're doing pro bono work that hasn't been through a clearinghouse, there is a risk that you are interfering with a funded service that then reports back to government or to their funder. Mm. And they may be saying, well, there's no demand for this. Mm. Well, actually, there was demand for this. Yes. Uh, mm. It's just that somebody was doing it. And the funded services are community legal centres. and Yeah. So uh, every jurisdiction in Australia and pretty much across the world, has a legal aid, so ours is the LSC, an Aboriginal legal service, which ours is ALRM, and then the community legal centre sector, of which South Australia has 13, um, I believe, at the moment. Uh, and then there's advocacy services as well. So we might look at a file and go, mm, that's actually not quite legal. You might be better off going to somewhere like DRAS, the Disability Rights Advocacy Service, or any of the other advocacy services. Yeah. And, and so to state the obvious, this is both civil and criminal. So um, people charged with crimes can mm -hmm. come uh, and and talk to you. And also, of course, those who are perhaps a bit impecunious don't have the money to fund a lawyer for their civil case. Yeah, absolutely. So we have our eligibility criteria sort of up on our website. Essentially, the category is dynamic because it's anything that isn't funded. And so whilst we say any matter, the majority of funding in South Australia is towards crime. So often we'll be able to say, well, here's a funded service that's available to you. So by virtue of that, the majority of our casework is civil. Um, and then through that, it's civil that the other services are not able to address. We better give the website. www.justicenet.org.au. <laughs> and you can find a welter of material there, including, as we'll come to in a moment, um, how to contribute and donate. But coming back to the type of services offered, Pro Bono Connect is the first one. That's mm -hmm. Is that the traditional one? Is that how things started off? That's you, it. And uh, that's really 
putting people who come to the service in touch with pro bono solicitors and council, mm-hmm. and we see a regular weekly email about that to see if we can take on matters. So that's that's, right. the, that's the first one. That's the clearinghouse. And that's clearinghouse. That's mm-hmm. how JusticeNet started. It did, yep. So it's a member organisation, so members can then receive the weekly email. We also, through that clearinghouse, watch patterns. So, for example, we have about three sort of patterns at the moment in regards to strategic litigation. So we might go, oh, we're getting a lot of matters in regards to you know, familial contractual disputes over property. Okay, we might need to think about a broader advocacy strategy here. What's happening nationally? Does there need to be some media run? Do we need to be doing up some fact sheets? Do we, instead of taking on all this work pro bono, need to be doing CPDs for the profession to be able to handle this in other ways? Yeah. So the clearinghouse is a, is a really good temperature of the sort of legal health of SA. And then second area, refugee and asylum seeker assistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that uh, is that connecting refugees with uh, with solicitors and counsel to or more generally providing advice to mm. them about the process. Yeah, so that's the the RASP program, as it's sort of known, refugee and asylum seeker program, is a subset of the clearinghouse. So it's a specialty sort of area of the clearinghouse, um, particularly dealing with judicial reviews. That sort of came from the legacy case load. Essentially, it's a it's a it's a list that was quite quiet for a while because those matters weren't going through the court. There was a there was a delay during COVID, but there's a lot at the moment. So we are definitely looking for more members who'd be willing to take on refugee asylum seeker matters. And and we've got the last two, the self rep service, self representation service and and homeless legal. So so for the first one of is that assistance to self-represented people about how they might present their case in court? Yeah, it is. So that currently operates out of the federal court and it's particularly federal court matters. There's also some fair work matters that are done through there and it can look like anything. So those both of those are what we call discrete task assistance clinics in the sort of legal assistance lingo, which means that we don't represent people, but they can come and do a drop-in and it might be sort of doing forms or helping them through the process or understanding that. We have 12 firms that are on the roster for the self-representation service. So essentially we sort of package it up. Uh, They can come down for their hour or two hours to sort of see some people in clinic and then we take the work from there. The Homeless Legal Service is also a discrete task assistance service, but adding another sort of just justice innovation lingo word to it, it's also a health justice partnership. So it works in a trusted places, trusted faces model, embedding lawyers into places where people who are at risk of or experiencing homelessness are already engaging. And one example of that is the Hutt Street precinct. Yeah. yeah, so we, we operate out of Hutt Street Centre, Catherine House, Baptist Care and SACAT, particularly for those, those clinics. And so that's obviously um, for homeless people who have facing a myriad of potential legal challenges, whether it be dealings with government or crimes they've been charged with or indeed civil disputes. Yeah, anything, anything. Any person that's experiencing or at risk of homelessness. And I think for the for the lawyers who come down to that clinic and sort of um, get to be involved, that um, program is actually supported by a homeless legal donor circle, which is an incredible sort of uh, group of largely uh, lawyers and judges who support the program through annual giving. And we do an annual panel event where we sort of interview one of the lawyers who's going down, one of the people who's working at the site, and then our homeless legal managing solicitor. And it is always so interesting to hear what the lawyers get out of being a part of that. Mm-hmm. Well, should we talk about that? So how how do lawyers, or indeed anyone, but mm-hmm. primarily lawyers, I suppose, uh, assist JusticeNet? Um, so we've, you've talked about the homeless uh, legal donor circle. Legal donor circle. Yep. So yep. that's the, I suppose you'd say, the, the highest kind of donation mm-hmm. process yeah. you have. Yeah, it is. So that's sort of our, our, our top tier contribution, which sees either the champion level, which is 2500 a year or 500 a year for the member level. Tax deductible. It in is. All <laughs> that's right. 
thanks, Scott, you're good at this. <laughs> um, and that program then specifically goes towards homeless legal. And I think it's interesting because I get asked quite a lot by other charities about that model because it is quite a successful demonstration of a donor circle, which is quite a, a trendy version of philanthropy at the moment, is getting people to sort of give modest to you know considerable amounts. It's, I wouldn't say that it's insignificant, but it's still quite modest in the sort of space of philanthropy. It's not like you've got someone who's mm. got a foundation saying, here's 10 grand, yeah. yes. and and sort of doing it collaboratively to sort of bring that good. And I'm just looking at the, uh, the website for this program, the $2,500 level, that keeps the clinic, that's the homeless clinic running for four days. Mm-hmm. So that's the type of yeah. funding you need. So actually, you actually need a lot of funding to do what yeah. Yeah. So we have um, we have a team of seven pretty incredible lawyers. I think they're all fabulous. Um, and what is quite interesting is that all of us have come from private. And so we have made, we're all part time. And then we have obviously the other sort of overhead costs, but we also have to facilitate the clinics and those sorts of things. But I think what is so phenomenal about JusticeNet is the scale that we can achieve. So some of the the maths that's sort of been done in analysing JusticeNet before, the idea is that for every dollar you give, $10 of legal work can be done, which means that it's scale that otherwise in any other program, you give a dollar, you get a dollar. A one to 10 ROI is pretty impressive. And, mm. and does that take into account the money that's saved, for example, in the court system? So it doesn't even no, do that. No, it doesn't do that. It's yeah. just on legal. Just to put that in perspective, you you have a, a self-represented litigant uh, who doesn't understand anything about the court process. That, right. that can tie up um, the courts for mm. years and years just mm-hmm. because of a lack of knowledge about how to approach the court system. And that must cost many multiples of- Oh, hugely so. And this is something that I particularly might just nerd out on because <laughs> the, the economics of this is super fascinating. It's a particular area that I think there's so little cost-benefit analysis that's been done. And it's a gap that exists across the world. Justice Connect, which is the sort of East Coast equivalent of JusticeNet has done uh, some more sort of research in this space and it is astronomical the sorts of numbers that they come up with because it's not a particularly attractive funding pitch, right? Like mm. donate money to us, we'll help people talk to a lawyer. People are like, I don't want to give money <laughs> to <laughs> help lawyers. It's what? an easier sell for, for medicine. I yeah, think, but. <laughs> hugely so. Medicine yeah. and, and they're often the charities that we're sort of pitching against when we particularly when we go to the philanthropic world. And so yeah, it is it, it does require a bit of weight. Just listen. <laughs> there's yeah, there's benefits. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. benefits to this. Lawyers do good things too. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's right. And I think the the thing that's most compelling, as you mentioned, Scott, is going, well, if we don't, do you understand how badly mm. this snowballs? Yeah. Because mm. it's not, no one goes, oh, you know what? I really want to go to court today. I really <laughs> just so badly want to go to court. And if, then if they hear no, very rarely do people go, that's fair that's enough. F- yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. And, okay. and, I, and I suppose it's not only just the immediate effects of of that, but people who have a genuine legal grievance just won't feel like they've had a fair go mm. and will talk to their friends mm. and um, so the system's broken. And so yeah. the system's broken, and that's a failure of you know all of us in the mm. system. Mm. So yeah, and then something else that we talk a lot about that we're super passionate about is that. There is, and we had a really excellent CPD that uh, that was done on this recently in regards to is community legal education an obligation of the profession? Do we have a bigger role to play when it comes to distributing legal information as distinct from legal advice? Understandably, legal advice is something that we can charge for. It's our, you know, 
It's, it's our skill, but legal information is something that should be publicly available. And we currently have record low numbers of people who engage with and understand the systems of our society, which is why we have things like the World Justice Forum bringing out reports saying that rule of law is in freefall around the world because people just do not understand the system. And more often than not, they're opting out of it. Mm. And I heard some really scary things when I was doing my fellowship in the States around courts really trying to engage people because they know that if they don't choose to engage in the legal process, then they will take it to violence. And it's like, well, that's not where we want to be. Precisely. And that's the very type of thing that the rule of law is designed Mm. to to prevent. So we've talked about the homeless legal donor circle. Mm -hmm. That's the $2,500 a year tax deductible or Mm -hmm. $500 a year. But there's also you can be a a friend. Yep. And that's just the monthly donation, which we try and plug. And Robin Layton is our fabulous uh, ambassador for the Friends. And that is completely at the discretion of the person making a donation. That's so right. you can sign up 10, 25, 100 yep. more dollars a month. Any of those, yeah. And it, it, you know, you mentioned the importance of regular funding, and it just makes a massive difference because, of course, to be able to say, great, we've got these things that we can forecast. There's a lot of boom and bust that comes with um, being in a sector where you are, ref- you know, reliant on charity dollars. So that does make a big difference. I mean, I was just trying to think, I don't know how many lawyers we've got. In the state, is it a couple of thousand, maybe three thousand? So if if we were to put ten dollars a a month in, um, so true, probably solve solve a few things. Solve it right there. We'll do our best. Um, So that's (laughs) that's what you need to get your viewership to your your listenership. Exactly, every lawyer. lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that is that's the money side of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, How can people help out? Yep. Yep. So um, the. The one thing that we sort of um, didn't touch on is membership. So membership is, because it is a membership organisation, that's how it all began. Much before my time, there were some excellent brains that put together the idea of JusticeNet. And the idea was that you sort of pay to be a member, either as an individual or as a firm. It's quite a nominal amount, but it comes with voting rights, the AGM, uh, and all those <laughs> sorts of great things. And uh, then you go onto our list to receive the weekly email. And in the weekly email there's anywhere between sort of five and 10 cases a week that might come through where we go, this this has merit. There are cases that we handle that don't go on that list, which for obvious reasons would be too identifiable for us to put on. Others that might be where it's not necessarily an individual, but we've used our discretion for public interest and it might be sort of more of a a broader, almost class action sort of sort of feel, or it's a more of a strategic litigation piece. We might directly approach members of the profession who have the skill set for that, and so they can sort of participate that way. And similarly for firms, they can then jump onto the roster at one of our clinics. So whether or not that is at the federal court clinic or at the homeless legal clinic, essentially we can then offer services to our to our member firms. How does insurance fit into mm-hmm. that? So if I'm a managing partner of a firm and I'm concerned about my junior solicitor going down there. And yeah. speaking to someone who's not a client of the firm. So yeah. how, how does that? I'm going to really enjoy putting this uh, on a podcast. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> uh, so it's quite a complex situation, um, but one in which uh, there is uh, live conversations that happen between CLCs Australia, CLCs SA, the Law Society. But essentially the way it works is that those people who are attending clinics are under our direct control and supervision. And so you'll be foreshadowed that you're going down to a clinic today, you're going to get these four people come in, these are their issues, this is what you're going to say. So it's a very managed environment to attend. If you are attending and there's a walk-in, then really it's just that you're doing initial triage. So the main skills that we're helping people develop in those and we sort of induct people and train people in are things like client interviews. I mean, a lot of the lawyers that we have that come down to those clinics 
they're in areas of practice where they don't often get face-to-face client interactions. So it might be those sorts of skills. It's it's sort of more yeah interpersonal skills or what I would hate to call the soft skills of the profession mm. because I think mm. they're pretty important and they do go back to those things about the rule of law that we talked about. But it is a, in terms of the insurance, that's how that side of clinics is managed. If you're taking on a matter yourself, then it is that the arrangement exists between you and the client. That's simply a, a client of yours. That's uh, right. um, it's easier to see there, isn't it? Um, how how much benefit the practitioner gets out of out of that scheme as well. I mean, developing those quote unquote soft skills yeah. that you might not otherwise have the opportunity to, Absolutely. to develop. I find it fascinating. Sometimes we induct firms and, you know, I get quite senior partners say, Beck, I've been doing this for 30 years. I haven't seen a real person in a long time. <laughs> We're like, come on, it's okay. Yeah. Come on down. Yeah. We'll, we'll show you. And it's, yeah, it is, it's really rewarding to watch mm-hmm. people grow in their confidence. And even one of the things that one of our lawyers said recently was that it's not necessarily that she takes the skills in her day into her day-to-day practice, but she takes the sk- her skills to the barbecue. Like she takes mm-hmm. them into social mm-hmm. environments where she comes to realise that the circles that she's mixing in don't have a lot of exposure. And this is something that Alice Rolls from Australian Pro Bono Centre talks about a lot in regards to, you know, we as lawyers enter an echelon of society that becomes quite closed. And as we step up those ranks in society, we get further and further away from the people that we're trying to serve. And so a really big sort of theory of pro bono work is it gets you back to seeing the consequence of lawmaking and the way that it's sort of playing out in society. The other, I mean, leave aside so-called soft skills, the hard skills of getting, for example, barristers into court, we've talked Mm. a bit about how trials don't much run anymore and so there's actually fewer and fewer trials, fewer and fewer chances to develop your your skills in a courtroom. Mm. I think President Livesey mentioned that on the Mm -hmm. podcast last time. So, you know, excellent way for especially junior solicitors or junior barristers to actually get into court and argue cases. Absolutely. Mm. And, you know, when we talk about this, we have to be conscious of the fact that it comes, you know, there's there's a balance in this, that these are people's lives, but also from a professional perspective, they're really interesting cases. Mm. Like there's, you know, the cases that can make and break a career are very rarely also financially Fabulous. Like there's a there's a reason that you can't monetize some things. And these cases that we sometimes have, they're just they're fascinating. Like there was a really interesting um conversation recently around self-represented litigants. And from time to time there can be a, oh my goodness, this is just so difficult. This is an understanding sort of wearing down of going, oh, can't we all just fall into the format that the court wishes for us to be? Mm. Without sort of appreciating that that can be very helpful to get that sort of alternate perspective to sharpen us as to why exactly does it happen that way? Why does it look in that sort of colour or that light and, and maybe we do need to think differently about it and run some stuff um, <laughs> to, to challenge it? Music to a barrister's ears. In simple terms, so if someone wants to be involved, whether it's mm-hmm. a firm or a, or a barrister, yeah. is it Simple as becoming a member. Becoming a member, absolutely. Becoming a member, yep. becoming a member is really helpful. We Everybody that becomes a member, we do a bit of a sit down, catch up with them and go, great, what areas do you currently practice in? And then the most enjoyable question, which is what do you want to practice in? And then I love seeing how different those are. You know, <laughs> I've always wanted to do this and I never got yeah. a chance and we can go, great, we can step you there. We can match you with silks who are experienced in that area or we can keep you in mind to junior something that might be in that space. And we've had some really great sort of examples of people who have been able to sort of pivot their career towards towards their passion because we sort of used a pro bono pathway to get there. Are there any upcoming events that we should be Absolutely. Um, aware of? Yeah. So we have culled the Justice Net calendar a little bit. Yep. We now just have the two. So we have Walk for Justice, yep. which most the, people will be familiar the centerpiece with. Centerpiece event. That's right. Yep. Um, on National Pro Bono Day in May every year. 
And now we have Art for Justice, which is uh, September the 22nd this year and is actually in partnership with the Art Gallery of South Australia, which is just super, super exciting. It's, it's a, the, the Art Gallery is closed and there's a private tour that's done of the current collection from Dr. Lisa Slade and she talks about the theories of justice in terms of the current collection. And whilst this is all happening, there's a South Australian artist this year, it's Dave Court, who is creating live a piece of artwork inspired by one of our recent cases. So everyone who attends receives a limited edition print of the artwork that's created on the night. I was reading about wow. that. I was fascinated by it. Uh, how do you, uh, well, I guess we'll see, how do you turn yeah. a case into an artwork? Is the case pre-chosen or is it chosen on the night? So everyone who buys a ticket votes on which of the three wow. cases <laughs> they would like to wow. be turned Great. into it. Um, Improvised yeah, art. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really exciting um, because it came to light that, you know, understandably we have to fundraise, but we wanted to do something that still felt authentic to us. We didn't want to just throw on a gala. You know, walk for justice is, you know, it's a verb. We're doing something. It's happening. And then when talking um, with the art gallery, they were like, let's keep it, let's keep it going. Let's do something. Let's have an activity. We're like, yes, we love that. So yeah, the everyone votes on it. It's created. And you know, I have to say, we thought the same thing. And last year we had Dan Withy at the as the artist. And those who attend actually have the opportunity to bid on the original piece of work. And we had some collectors of his afterwards uh, who were like, what? We heard that there was an original <laughs> piece that went for this price and we would have paid double. We were like, well, come along next year. Um, but if if you know anybody who has who went last year and has a copy of that print, in fact, Hanson Chambers bought the original so you can see the original in their chambers, it is actually incredible what he created from that wow. story. It's all obviously for very obvious reasons we pick abstract artists so that we don't end up with mm -hmm. a portrait. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it is it's a beautiful piece of artwork. We were all blown away. And how do people get tickets? Yeah. Is this through the JusticeNet website? Yes, probably easiest to go. <laughs> we don't surface it on our website necessarily. It's an it's a it's a happy tension um, between fundraising and obviously um, help seekers who don't really want to see us fundraising. So mm -hmm. we we actually house it at I think it's www.a4j.justicenet.org.au. Did I get that right, Scott? Uh, I, I feel like so. you're I, reading I, it. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to say <laughs> A4J is Art for Justice. That's right. But that's numeral four. What we might do is pop up the website on our uh, Twitter or whatever it's called now, yeah. X. X. Um, oh, yes. Which is another topic altogether. Um, <laughs> and so people can buy a ticket. And what, what yeah. was the date again? The 22nd of September. 22nd. So that's actually mm -hmm. coming up. It is. And yeah. very excitingly, I don't know if anybody else finds this exciting, but we are. We're, we're a no-nonsense team, clearly. It's 5.30 to 7.30, so you can still go to dinner afterwards uh, or go home, which yeah. is great. Yeah. <laughs> or put the kids to bed. That's <laughs> right. They're very practical at Justice Net. We understand these things. So We're on the topic of art. I, I couldn't help but find when I did some research for this that, of course, you've got a bit of a personal oh. um, connection to the arts. What a segue. Uh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's why I'm the high-priced yeah, podcast yeah. Uh, commentator. Yeah. <laughs> so you were in a, uh, you, you've got a, you're an amateur thespian and we're in, uh, I was involved in the Adelaide Independent Theatre Company. I was, yeah. yes. I am, I can join the ranks of lawyers who were just washed up performers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we've, we've, there might be two here, Will. Yeah. Yeah. 
I wouldn't call you washed yeah, up. So, I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated. Go- <laughs> I'm, not washed up. You, you, I'm still going to make resting. it. Yeah, yeah, you've at the fringe uh, regularly. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Every, oh, every year. Do uh, improvised comedy in last? No uh, way. Yeah. Oh. Oscar-winning improv last last wow. year. Wow. This year. Oh, that's very yep. exciting. Yeah. No, well, I yep. originally I started out sort of just doing music and then danced as well. So of course you get straight into music theatre land, becoming a triple threat. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah I was. Important. I was adamant that that's, that was going to be my life. And then I realised there was a lot of auditions, whereas, you yeah. know, if I just yeah. went into advocacy, I could just do it every day with never audition again. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's how it came to be. Uh, and you still, you, you're not in the amateur theatre space anymore? Yeah, uh, no, not really. I mean, my time in the NT, it's pretty, um, there's not a lot up there in that space, which is mm. a little bit sad. Coming back to SA, I've done a bit in sort of helping out with judging or teaching and things like that. But yeah, no, nothing else as of yet. Well, Perhaps I can, as a, I, you could um, you know play a witness in a in a in a mood <laughs> or something like that. I, I think I have done a bit of that yeah. since I've been back. Yeah. In our ETAC course, which is the trial advocacy course, you get the university students coming along. They tend to throw themselves into the role big time. Oh yeah, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. real tears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> real tears. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mainly um, when they see your advocacy. Work. Oh, that was that was me. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Real tears just trying to deal yeah. with yeah. No, I, I I did a few of those because um, they were paid acting gigs. Weren't really? Oh, were they? Yeah, yeah. Not necessarily for the law schools, but back when I was, yeah, when I was going through law school here, um, they used to be paid for the medical um, sort of medical oh, schools, right, yeah. and I did do a couple of those. Oh well, I, I know. Yeah, my my wife's an emergency doctor, and so oh, she really says good. that in some of the exams in medical school, they actually pay people to come in and present as patients. Yeah. And some of them are, for example, drug seeking, and mm-hmm. you've got to work out which are which, are which um, yeah. and have hidden ailments that you've got to interview them to get the. So yeah, I did one of those. You've done one of those. I actually, I have a um, a terrible example of how much I was one of those people that wanted to go above and beyond. That I was doing one once, and they sort of their backstage for you was sort of this kitchen at a community centre somewhere or other, and I was supposed to go out presenting as an asthmatic. And I was like, oh, I just really want to nail this. Um, and found some cinnamon in the kitchen. Oh, so, thought, so, so true method acting. Yes, yeah. right? I thought, oh, this is going to be genius. Managed to just about give myself a proper coughing fish. <laughs> and I'm out and there and they're measuring yes. that. Then, <laughs> Not acting. <laughs> yeah, they're taking their obs going like, oh, this is so oh, impressive. Geez, How heart rate is this? so yeah. high. I'm yeah. like, oh, <laughs> That's right. Look, yeah. uh, yes, the thespian, it comes in yeah. handy from time to time. Yeah. Oh, well, next next fringe, we'll, we'll keep you in mind. Yeah, yeah. thanks. Absolutely. Great. Uh, well, I think that's probably about a good time to wrap it up. Thank yeah. you so much for coming in. We really appreciate no your time. So um, JusticeNet, the website, that's mm-hmm. where people can go. They, all the information's there. The donate button is big and bold in the right-hand corner. Thank you. We are so grateful for your support on the podcast. Thanks, guys. Our pleasure. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. I must admit I feel a bit left out. Um, It all got a bit artistic at the end there and... (laughs) I'm the antithesis of of art. But you know about Dire Straits, so you've got one up on me. Know about Dire Straits and looking forward to the uh, art for justice thing, so I'm going to be educated there, no doubt. Speaking of arts, though, what about movies? Um, I'd like to mention something that I am reasonably proud of but not overly proud of. I've actually seen the Barbie movie and uh, I have to say I actually enjoyed it. The reason I went to see it was I read these conflicting articles in the Australian and the Finn Review (laughs) 
with respect to Barbie and whether it was just simply a movie made for marketing purposes. And in a way, you can see how it, it's been hugely popular for marketing. Um, but I actually, um, I actually thought it was quite yeah. well written. So yeah. you would have this podcast believe that the reason you went to see Marg- Mar- Mar- Margot Robbie Correct. in Barbie that was, is, that was secondary. It was to resolve a conflict between the Australian and the Australian Financial Review. My primary reason for seeing the movie was um, the conflicting reviews. The secondary purpose for going to the movie was Margot Robbie and, and uh, what I heard was a very, very good cast, including Ryan Gosling. Did you do the Oppenheimer Barbie double bill? No, I didn't. I don't have a strong enough bladder to do that. <laughs> um, and also I do eat a lot of popcorn. Um, so that creates its own challenges. Oh, what did you think of Barbie? I, I thought it was actually, well, put it this way, it was better than I thought it would be. Right. Um, okay. I also saw um, Mission Impossible 2. I've Will, seen that. Yeah. What did you think of it, Will? Yeah, I, I thought it was a great fun movie. The stunts are just remarkable. Is Tom Cruise still doing the, his own the stunts? The fact that he does these stunts. And, and what is he, 60? Uh, 60 plus nice. now. But he, the, the face of a 20-year-old. But. Yeah, riding motorcycles off cliffs and all. Spoilers, but it's just incredible the things that he's doing that he's. That just sounds like Ted Guthrie here at Chambers. (laughs) There's a lot of similarities between Ted Guthrie and Uh, Tom Cruise. It's hard to tell them apart at times. (laughs) Well, there is a stunt actually in the movie that took months and months to prepare where Tom Cruise uh, actually does the stunt, prepared for it, where he rides a motorbike down a ski slope. I've seen this. Yes, and Mm -hmm. so he rides a motorbike off the end of the uh, slope over a cliff and then parachutes. So the idea is he parachutes to get on a moving train, which is the Orient Express. But uh, have you seen him, well, that's the film of him doing it. He did it five times just to make sure he got it right. Wow, yeah. The other thing I'm watching at the moment, I must say, and uh, it's more of an admission, the Netflix series The Lincoln Lawyer, which is extremely entertaining, if not very true to life. But it's about a man who drives around a a truly massive four-wheel drive. So it's based on the... The Matthew McConaughey movie, but so I think Ted Guthrie again. Uh, well, yeah, again, Ted. But uh, this time he's got a, a truly massive full drive and keeps all of his all of his files in the back of his car and is driven around to Los Angeles court by a driver. And I could I could see you in that role, Darren. I can see myself in that role for sure. Um, one thing I was thinking too, with respect to the arts, and and this is uh, theatre. I wonder if the Mary Poppins ticket sales went up after episode two. How could they I mean, not? it would be. I mean, you would have thought there'd be a spike mm-hmm. in sales with all those men doing the tap dancing in step and time. <laughs> well, it certainly was a um, it was a um, a heady uh, advertisement for the Mary Poppins. Um, I think you might be. It's a wonderful musical. Uh, the kids love it. Yeah, kids love it. You might be exaggerating the reach of this podcast. Uh, I suspect. <laughs> oh, retirees! Oh. I looked at our age bracket, taking their grandchildren to Mary Poppins. I don't think we um, uh, can say anything more other than to ask the usual question, is that a convenient time? Yes, Scott, adjourn the podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Is That a Convenient Time? If you'd like to suggest any topics or leave any feedback, the podcast has a Twitter at A Convenient Time, all one word. Before the next episode, please consider heading over to justicenet.org.au and setting up a regular donation. We hope to see you next time on Is That a Convenient Time?